Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we'll be joined by none other than my sister and actress, producer, and director, Megan Good. But before we get to Megan, I wanted to talk about President Biden's racial equity executive orders, what they are, what they mean, and what they aren't, and how we should think about them. In case you missed it, earlier this week, President Biden signed four racial equity executive orders. One restores the federal government's commitment to fighting housing discrimination. Another one prohibits federal privately owned prisons. Another one instructs all federal agencies to improve their coordination with tribal leadership in developing policies that affect Native Americans. And the last one seeks to target racist attacks targeted at the Asian American community in the wake of COVID. So what we have here is just the beginning of a series of executive orders on racial equity. It's the first step, a down payment, if you want to think of it that way. The private prisons one is huge and is a long-standing demand from prison reform and criminal justice advocates. Housing discrimination is real, and the Obama administration's affirmatively furthering fair housing rule was designed to combat it. Trump and Ben Carson, of course, pulled it back. This executive order puts it back in play. The others are a good first step, but obviously not substitutes for substantive policy, and I'm sure President Biden would agree with you if you told him that. But what do these executive orders mean? They mean that racial equity will absolutely be a consideration in the steps the administration will take on a range of issues. Does that mean we'll get everything we want? No, of course not. There's definitely not an EO on reparations, but hey, we might get one one day. I don't think anybody thinks these executive orders by themselves are game changers, but they're progress we didn't get under any previous administration, and they're down payments on broader policy changes we want to see. We can commend them and demand more. These aren't the end of the conversation on race. And let's remember that they've only been in office for eight days. And I've got my laundry list of bills I want to see, but we just swore in two new senators last week. Trust me when I say I want action now too, but we're rebuilding the federal government in the midst of a pandemic and an economic crisis. It's not a light switch. We'll get more, let's demand more, but we have to stay engaged. And that's that on that. Now on to a great conversation with Megan Good. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Megan, good. Thank you so much for joining us on the Bakari Sellers podcast. Thank you for uh, spending some time with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. 
No, it's dope. We start every episode the same way by asking my guests to walk listeners through the arc of their career. And your career has been impressive and extensive. You've been an actress, a producer, director, and writer. Talk us through how you first got into acting with your first roles as a preteen to your evolution into starring in Eve's Bayou to transitioning into an adult actress to the work you're now doing on all sides of the camera. Oh, man. Um, well, I started at four doing extra work on Doogie Howser and Amen. And and I really kind of did it as a hobby and, and did, you know, Barbie commercials and Pringles and all kinds of stuff. And then when I got about 11, the neighborhood I grew up in was a predominantly not white neighborhood, um, obviously in like the 1980s, early 1990s. And um, I dealt with a lot of racism, a lot of bullying. And so I had a teacher who really had it out for me and just made it very hard for me. And I ended up losing my work permit for that year, the year that I was 12 years old. And I was out Mm. of acting for a year. And I realized like, gosh, I really, I really do love this. And so um, I did everything I needed to do, got my work permit back at 13, said this year, I'm going to book my first speaking role in a movie. And I did. And that was Friday. And um, after that, my next big role was Eve's Bayou which was you know, pivotal for me because I, I had read the script for Eve's Bayou when I was 10. And at that time I was playing Eve and then it took four years for it to really come full circle. And by then I was 14 and I was like, okay, I have to play Sicily no matter what. <laughs> um, and I had no idea that it would be such a pivotal part of my life because you know, I'm seeing a, a black female director and I'm thinking this is like a normal thing. You see it all the time. And I had no idea how, you know, kind of revolutionary at that time, Casey Lemons was, um, and still Very is. So. And yeah. so, um, right. <laughs> and so, um, did that movie. And then from then I went to Nickelodeon. I was Nickelodeon slash Disney kid till I was about 19. And then by the time I was 22, I was still, playing 16, you know, I'm like in roll bounce with Bow Wow, who is 16, kissing a 16 year old when I'm 22, turning 22. Whoa, 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 back up. I didn't, I didn't know that. I, now that makes sense. You were 22 playing a 16 year old with a 16 year old. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't weird at all. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and so, um, I remember around that time I was like, okay, how do I make that transition? Because you know, for every child actor, it's very hard to make the transition from child to adult. Dude, so that's my next question. So like you write it, you, you, you can write the script yourself. So we've seen a lot of child actors not transition mm-hmm. in generations prior to ours, not right. transition well into adult actors and not do it successfully. I'm curious mm-hmm. as to what contributes to actors who make that successful transition, um, because we're seeing it more and more with our generation. Now, even Amanda Seals, who started it when she was like, in the womb is still, you know, doing great work. Talk about the unique challenges of growing up in such a public way, both personally and as an artist. Yeah. um, Well, to answer the first part of your question, I think everybody's journey is unique. For me, it was a matter of saying, okay, so I'm not as big as a Raven Simone or a Macaulay Culkin. I'm like in there where where people are familiar with me, but I, I had a little bit more movement because I wasn't as big as they were. Mm-hmm. And so I really kind of made a strategic strategic decision. And one of them, a big one of them was the 21 questions video. You know, I was 21 and I was like, okay, if I do this music video with one of the biggest rappers in the world right now, if I do this, this is like a national commercial saying, oh, she's grown up. She's an adult. She's a young woman. Um, so it was very strategic at that time that I chose that. And I, you know, I had my stipulations, like I got to have a wedding ring. It's got to be like, you know, he, she's wifey and all that kind of stuff. Um, oh really? So but, you did. So you did twenty one questions before roll bounce. Yeah, yeah. 
But I'd say it wasn't until, I mean, 21 questions did shift things significantly, but I was still able to play 16 or 17 or 18. But I started at that point being able to play more adult roles. You know, you got served and then stomp the yard and waist deep and all that stuff came on the heels of over those next few years of people going, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, she's a young woman now, you know? So was it difficult? I mean, I, I guess you, you, you plotted out a path, mm-hmm. it, but for 21 questions, would it have been difficult for you to break out of that typecasting of being a child star and find the roles that show audiences mm-hmm. now? are now ready for, that they see you now as that grown woman? Uh, I think so. I mean, I think that by the grace of God, I think I was able to be strategic enough that it did shift people's perception. The thing that kind of sucks about it is that it shifted people's perceptions so much that I just became like that sexy girl or that love interest or the girl next door or whatever it was. And throughout my 20s, I was really stuck in that role trying to one, work, you know, and be able to pay my bills and say, okay, this is great. I'm working and I'm working as a young adult, but in the same breath, like, wow, I'm capable of doing so many different things. I'm not really getting that opportunity, which led me to doing a lot of independent films and uh, characters and platforms where people allowed me to be something different than what people expected of me traditionally. And so it wasn't even, it wasn't even until I was 30 that I was able to really transition out of just being the sexy girl. And um, say, hey, I can do this and I can do that. I can do this. And part of that was like chopping off my hair and like going back to TV and playing totally different character. And so it's it's definitely been a transition and it's definitely been a, quite the journey, but it's been a steady one. You know, it's been I mean, a slow it, but, one. But your story one. is your story is so unique because I think more people need to hear it because you literally have you you've transformed perceptions and you've broken the mold. When people go do music videos, they there's this perception, mm-hmm. uh, which is unfortunate, but you've utilized that as a stepping stone to further your career. And I think more people need to know that you were and are still a pioneer when it comes to that. Now, my favorite question, as I was thinking about what I was going to ask you, is you're, you're, and this is a personal question, so forgive me, but you're a part of a, of a power Hollywood couple uh, with your husband, Devon Franklin, who is a producer, writer, and actor in his own right. Um, how do you two incorporate two active careers in the industry while still keeping in things intact between you two? We come first. You know, um, I mean, there's a part of it where what I do as an actress and what he does as a producer, author, motivational speaker, there is the part of it that's like, this is purpose. God is allowing us to have these platforms so that we can build the kingdom and so that we can be usable. But it's not our identity. It's not who we are at the end of the day. It's what we are allowed to do. And we're allowed to do it for something that's bigger than us. So there's a part of it that's like, okay, we understand purpose there's mutual respect, there's mutual support, um, there's mutual, we're on the same path. But then, you know, at the end of the day, underneath God comes, you know, purpose and the commitment that we've made to each other as husband and wife above and before everything else. And so we put us first. And that's the biggest thing is just constantly working on us, constantly growing, constantly understanding that everything else can go up and down and all around, but we are consistent and we are forever. And so, yeah, just just understanding that you can't believe your own hype. You can't believe that this world is who you are. This thing goes up and down. People are finicky and not mm-hmm. finicky. And it's not real, you know? It's real in the sense of what you use it for if it's bigger than you, at least in in my opinion. Yeah, you know, I, I scroll through my Twitter page and then, I, you know, he just be out here randomly praying on a Tuesday <laughs> at 11 and I stop and pray with him. I'm like, I don't even know what we praying for. And by the way, he's yeah. a second best dressed preacher on, on IG. Tell him he got to uh, he got to <laughs> holler at T.D. Jakes. We got to get him some of that, some leather. 
some le- a leather jacket, a leather pants to be wearing out there. That's I'm blaming that on you. That's what. I mean. What? <laughs> we gonna give him some leather. <laughs> no, my baby. No, leather's not for him. You know, so, yeah, no, that's not. Awesome. <laughs> I'm gonna tell TD you talking about him. Oh, uh, I let's... said that is not for my boo, Bishop Jakes. He first of all, Bishop Jakes is Bishop Jakes. Can't nobody. Bishop Jakes is Bishop Jakes. He we we talk. He'll he'll call me at eleven o'clock at night sometimes, and just when I'm having moments, he he prays me through it. So shout out to Bishop Jakes. Yeah, Bishop let's talk Jakes about too. let's talk about one of your latest projects. If not now, when? put myself out there. I put myself out there and was open to love. No, you put out before prom and got played. She's kind of right. You were kind of a fast ass. Yes. Me and my girlfriends used to sit around and plot our lives. So much has changed. For the good or bad? Depends on who you ask. Mom! Mom! Why are you here? I'm here because she's my friend. Talk to me. I'm miserable. Keep telling myself it'll get better. There is someone here beside you. People that OD are not fine, Tyra. I am not a junkie. We can lean on one another until we're lifted up. I am my circumstances, and neither are you. What is it that you want? Your dreams, your desires? I've put family before my dream. I want both. How do you forgive someone? How do you stop being so angry? I was so frustrated that she had to see me like this. Life is not black and white. Everything is a whole lot of gray. One day you are going to have to take a leap and trust that somebody is willing to catch you. That piece five you smoke must be some like next level. Tell me what it's about. Give me your elevator pitch. Tell me what it's about. Uh, if not now, when is basically the journey of four women, you know, it's about friendship. It's about forgiveness. It's about second chances. And we open, um, meeting my character, Tyra, who, um, is going through a crisis and all the friends who have really haven't seen or spoken to each other consistently in the past 15 years are forced back together to help her through this crisis. And what you discover is, all the kind of issues that they've had with each other and all the kind of issues that they've gone through individually and collectively. And what I really love about this movie is that it explores themes with women that never get explored, never get talked about, Mm. you know? And even for me, you know, I just decided in the last few years that I definitely want to become a mother. But before that, there was a time where I was like, I don't know if that's what I want to do. And anytime I say that, it's like, you're like a bad person or something. And it's like, why can't we just say what we feel and where we are in life? And, you know, from the moment you get married, everyone's like, we can have a kid, we can have a kid. And I'm like, no, I just got married. And so I love that the characters explore, you know, being pregnant and not sure you want to be a mother or not being able to get pregnant and how that can affect your life in all areas or, you know, giving up your dreams and what you feel is your purpose and your passion so that you can get married and have a kid. And you're like, is this, you know, I want it all, you know, or dealing with addiction and not just like, you know, a lot of films with people of color. It's like, Oh, it's crack addiction. No, 
other addiction. There's plenty types of addiction. And I don't think we talk about opioids enough. And so, yeah, I think, I think it's a really special film and it's really kind of a little bit of an homage to way into XL, even though it's a different, you know, completely different, but those movies made into XL set it off all that, those kind of movies, especially growing up where I grew up was like, wow, I see myself, you know, set it off still has scenes in it. I think about all the time. Uh, I mean, set it off was so dope. I still, I still just, it, it makes me the scene. And, and it was a scene with Jada Pinkett when she needed the $10,000 for her brother to go to college. Yeah. And, and then she had to, she tore the check up and my stomach still, it just, Earth. it just, all those, the movies you named, I mean, were so, so perfect. This was your, if I'm not mistaken, this was your directorial debut. Talk about the yeah. transition from purely acting to both acting and directing a film. How, do, how the hell you direct yourself? How does that happen? <laughs> Um, look, there's a will, there's a way, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because I started producing when I was 24, I had no idea what I was doing and I kind of just learned as I went along. And then with directing, I directed my cousin Dijon's music video. He was just coming off the show Glee and, and I was helping him produce it and kind of joked if I couldn't get the director I wanted, then I would do it. And then I ended up having to do it and it ended up just awakening something inside me where I just fell in love with directing. And so I directed a bunch of music videos and, you know, Eric Campbell and Israel Houghton and Adrian and a lot of people. And so this was like a natural progression. I just didn't expect to do it at the time we did it. And then it just turned out to be an epic experience. And, you know, with directing yourselves, you know, me and Tamara, we co-directed, she wrote the project. We both produced, we both co-starred and, first week, both of us were behind the camera. Mm-hmm. The next week, you know, Tam was in front of the camera and I definitely felt like I was going to throw up because that first scene was like everybody in the movie was in this one scene with like this massive crane shot. And then I realized like, wait, 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 wait. You know what you're doing. Just trust your instincts. They're yours. Nobody else has them. They can't be wrong. You just have to lean in and trust, you know, what yeah. you go to do. And so did that. And then, you know, after that, you know, when I was on camera and then when Tamara and I were both on camera, it was literally like, we're going, we're checking the shot. And we both go on camera and they were like, okay, I'm like action. And then she's like, cut. And then we go check the shot. They're like, okay, here's adjustments we need to make. And we just made it happen, you know? And like I said, where there's a will, there's a way. We interviewed not long ago, a good friend of mine, Lee Davenport. Um, She has a show coming out called Run the World, a sitcom that will premiere on stars about black Mm -hmm. women and friendship. And we're all fans of Insecure, where we get a front row seat into another group of Black women and their friendships. Talk about the value of telling Black women's stories, not just as an actress, but as a writer and director, when you're the one who's shaping the vision and delivering it to audiences. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, the value of it is is invaluable because I think we have some representation out there, but not every representation of us is a representation of every woman, you know? And like I said, where I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood being kind of the odd man out. And, and then, you know, when all the black kids started moving to the neighborhood, everyone's like, well, why do you talk like that? And da, 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 da. And she's that, you know? And I think, you know, even that character doesn't get represented. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important that the more projects that we can create, we can make sure we all see our, ourselves, you know, in each other and, and every different type of character and every different type of project. And what I loved about If Not Now When was, it was the most frustrating, but also the most empowering thing to overcome, which was everyone's like, well, you know, in essence, in so many words, we don't want to see four black women do a drama. Like if you guys do a comedy, then it's okay. But like a drama, we don't think anyone's going to want to see that. 
And that was the the issue that we kept running up against while no one would give us money unless we were willing to change this or that, or, you know, or someone would give us money, but then like, as we get into it, they'd be like, well, but we would really like to, you know, can't you make a joke about this sister girl? And I'm like, that's not what this is though, you know? And it is a black female. How hard, how hard was it to sell this film? I mean, from writing to, I mean, how hard? It's, here's a sad part. It's sad, but it also is a blessing because it's, it, it, it gives you perspective. We struggled to sell this movie. Once we, you know, we got a private investor to come in and give us the full amount. And it was amazing because we had complete autonomy to create whatever film we wanted to create. Then when we started going out to the film festivals, we started running into that same issue, which was like, mm-hmm. well, you know, black female dramas don't really sell overseas. This might be hard to sell. And we're like, yeah, but just give us a platform and let us attempt to sell it. And then after that, it was like, you know, okay, fine. We're going to go out there and we're going to sell it independently on our own. And uh, as we started to do that, a sad thing is when the pandemic happened and uh, when Ahmaud Arbery passed away, I was like, we're going to sell this film now. And that, yep. that was it. Yeah. heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. It's heartbreaking, but I was like, everyone's going to want black content. And, you know, and the thing is what I love about vertical is that I didn't feel that from them. I feel that vertical has always um, created projects, no matter who's created, whoever is creating them or bringing them to the table. They have with open arms love to put out into the world when people create projects that are unique to their experience. Mm-hmm. And they've always done that since day one. And if you look at the movies that they put out, they do everything across the board. And so with them, we felt right off the back that it was the right home. And, you know, and then everything else just kind of came full circle. And I think also there was a lot of conversation about protect the black woman, which, you know, yeah. was a conversation. That's that's Brianna. Yeah. I knew in my spirit, I knew that we were going to sell this movie. I'm just glad that when we did sell it, it was to a place that we felt like actually wanted it because they just wanted it, you know, yeah. um, which has been amazing. So where can we watch if not now when? Yes, it's everywhere. Um, so, I mean, that's, a, that's the tough part right now because, I mean, you can't just be like, go down to Regal and get you some well, popcorn. And that's what was hard is because, you know, a big accomplishment for us was that we had a theatrical release. So we're like, we in theaters. And then it was like, no, it's a <laughs> pandemic. Ain't nobody going to the theater. <laughs> you in theaters um, by yourself. You, right, you rented out the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it, it still is in some select theaters, but really in right now in what we're living in, that prestige doesn't really matter as much. It's really about, do people see it? Do they like it? And yeah, so of course. we're on demand, we're on iTunes, we're on Apple TV. We're pretty much everywhere that you can get it on digital. And most importantly, the feedback has been really, really good. And people seem to be loving it. And I'm like, yay. Just That's dope. I mean, but I, people need to realize that we have to support films like this if we want our stories to be told by our people. Because I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you can get money, you can put something out, but if nobody watches it, then it makes it that much more difficult. So, right. you know, this year I was a little disappointed because Michael B. Jordan recently beat me out for uh, People's Sexiest Man of the Year. It's, a, it's hey. another run. I was runner up again. I mean, it it, it happens. I mean, I, I think that the vote was rigged, but it is what it is. All the votes uh, are rigged, evidently. Uh, evidently. But you see, <laughs> you see great actors like my good friend J.D. Washington and Michael B. Jordan. You see some legendary actors like Will Smith. Um, Viola Davis from South Carolina is one of the dopest, most talented individuals on the screen and around the screen. So now that you've directed your own film, what would be your dream project as a director? And I'm, I don't necessarily want to make my debut with you because that's just too much pressure. I need to start with some smaller budget films first. So just take me out the equation. 
Oh, okay. Understood. Um, I think a challenge for me is like, you know, a few years ago I set out and I was like, I want to be a DC or a Marvel superhero. And I did that and I'm doing that. And I said, I want to do some real like Lucille Ball physical comedy. And I'm doing that on a new Amazon show. And so what I set out to do that was a challenge for me that I really wanted to do that seemed not tangible because of whatever be the reason that I'm doing by the grace of God only. But um, I think the thing that I haven't done is a biopic, you know, mm. somebody's life story. I think it's a lot more challenging to live and breathe a character in a human being that already exists versus you have to become, you have to, become you have to become somebody else. And not only do you Embody. become the good parts of the, that person, you also have to become all of it. When that person goes crazy, you got to go crazy too. Yeah. Yeah. Who do you want to play? I don't know. For a long time, when I was uh, younger, I wanted to do Aaliyah. And then... You got uh, rhythm, though? Can you dance, though? I mean, that's the question. I could pull it up. (laughs) But no, I would have... I mean, I would have, you know, I would have rehearsed until I was blue in the face, so... Let's go to... We got to go to your TikTok to see if you can uh, even dance a little. (laughs) I got one TikTok, one dance video (laughs) on my sister's on her TikTok. But... Uh, and then for a long time, I wanted to do Whitney and, um, I had spoken with Whitney the week before she passed and I pitched it to her and we talked about kind of like what would the ending be. And at the time she had just finished doing sparkle with my husband and it was a project that she was developing, um, with Deborah Martin Chase for Aaliyah to play sparkle years ago. And they finally did it that, that year with Jordan Sparks and, um, um, yeah, I was like, well, it would end with a new beginning, which is like your new film coming out and you producing now and all that kind of stuff. And then she passed away that week on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. Um, and I was supposed to be meeting with her in person the next day after she passed to talk to her about the project. Um, so for a long time, I didn't, I, there wasn't anybody else. I was just like, as such a Whitney, such a Whitney fan. I mean, um, my birthday is the 8th, hers is the 9th of August, just very similar personalities in a lot of ways. Um, and so I think that that was like something that was near and dear to my heart. So I don't know. I don't know who it would be. Now. I don't know. I just feel like you got a, you, you got such an amazing spirit, maybe a Coretta Scott King or something like that. Oh, stories, that. stories that could go back and, and be told that would be, that would be amazing. Mm-hmm. I know 2020 has been a crazy year for everyone, all of us. Um, and now we're just happy to be out of that year, but particularly folks in the film industry, given how COVID has affected so much of all that you all do. But you had another project this year in The Monster Hunter. Talk about that project and what it was like launching a movie in this environment when theaters are closed. I mean, you, you go straight to TV and streaming services. Talk about right. Monster Hunter. Yeah. I mean, I think the, it's interesting because, the, the, you know, it was like one of our big things with the other movie was like, we have to get it in theaters so we can be up for Spirit Awards and like all the other awards and stuff. And now that actually doesn't matter. Like since the pandemic has happened, they've it's significantly shifted how all these projects are perceived and the platforms they come out on. Um, but Monster Hunter was one that they still went to theater. You know, it's an epic sci-fi, crazy action film. And that's the way it really ought to be seen. Um, but it's tough. It's tough, you know, to do that in this climate. But it's a movie I'm really, really proud of. It was definitely a challenge. I've never been so dirty every single day of my life. I mean, we were constantly... Where did you film it? South Africa in the desert. And uh, we were living about seven hours away from Cape Town in the desert in tents with spitting black cobras with spiders the size of your hand that 
look like they're chasing you, but really they're just trying to be in your shade of your shadow. <laughs> sand bombs every day. I mean, I, I get off a set and I would just have sand in my ear, sand in my lashes, in my brows, up my nose, in every crevice. I'd be talking and I could feel like gravel in my teeth. And you just really had to give yourself over to it and just be like, like, this is what it is and, and choose to enjoy yourself. And I really, really did. Your um, husband was like, "Yeah, you enjoy that. I'm a, I'm a Facetime you, and we can, we can spend oh, no. time together." No, no, he he flew thirty thousand miles uh, to South Africa to be right with his baby when we were living in tents. And my husband's a little bougie, so I'm like, "Let's go camping!" Oh my god, I, I can see, it. I can see, I can see that. I can oh, see a little bougie. Like, no, he was just. I mean, he's great. He flew. I mean, he flew all the way out there thirty hours and then drove seven hours to me. So. Oh, wow. um, I don't know a lot of husbands that would do that, but he did that. But it's even so my baby's a little bougie. He'd be like, no, we can't. We, what are we going to do? And I'm like, baby. But you you described Monster Hunter as, quote, one of the best experiences of your career. That's saying a lot for yeah. somebody with as many credits as, as you have. I mean, I thought Roll Bounce was the best. No, I'm just, that was just I think, yeah, I had an amazing time on that, too. <laughs> so what is it about this project that stood out? Why why was this one of the best experiences of your of your career? One, my prayer was that I wanted to travel internationally career-wise. I wanted movies to take me to different countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it's taken me to London, Canada, but never to like South Africa, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it was my first time going to South Africa. It was a sci-fi action movie, which was something I was praying for as well. And the cast was just really amazing and really humble and when you don't have a TV and you can't watch Netflix and you can't really barely get any service on your phone and it's just y'all hanging out on set in the desert. And we just, you know, me and I mean, everybody, we just had all these fun games we would play and act out movies and play card games. And I just really had a very disconnected, present life experience where I just had fun and did the work and really gave myself over to the whole experience. And it just was epic. Wow. I mean, that just sounds, I mean, South Africa is dope in itself, but being able to allow your passion take you somewhere, it's just different. So what's next for you? And can you tell us anything yet about the project you're doing with Tracy Oliver? And if I'm not supposed to ask, Joey, Joey can just tell me I ain't supposed to ask, but y'all ain't giving me no direction. So I'm asking whatever I want to ask. So tell me about the project you got with Tracy Oliver. What's What's up with that? Oh man, I'm so excited. Um, so right now we're untitled, but it is an incredible cast. Uh, I mean, Jerry, jo- I mean, Shaniqua, Grace, I mean, just amazing. Tyler, amazing, amazing cast. Crazy fun scripts, totally inappropriate and totally awesome in the same breath. <laughs> Those are the best um, kind. Oh yes. Uh, definitely like a little bit of like physical Lucille Ball comedy for me but then also drama and also just very grounded and real. But I think that we found a unique perspective and a unique way to introduce you to these women and see their experience. And, um, and this is probably one of the characters I like most relate to. She's very quirky and offbeat and a little nerdy, like overconfident, but also like a little like, Ooh, that was bad. Right. That was okay. I shouldn't do that. You know? And so something I'm really, really enjoying doing. And for me, anytime I, with TV, you know, it's such a, it's such a marathon. It's not a race. And, and so if that, if it's that type of commitment where it's like, this could be two, three years, you know, four or five months out of the year, I really want to 
really be excited about the character. And I'm really excited about this character. And um, so, yes, I have that. And I go back to resume filming in two weeks, um, which is great. And prayers, then, prayers. Let's keep that. The, yeah, for sure. I believe in God. And I'm literally going back a year later after like when I left. So there's that. And then we start Shazam 2 in May. And so I'm excited about that. So I'm just. So you're busy, busy. By the grace of God. By the grace of God. Yeah. So um, how can listeners follow you on social media and know what's up for Megan Good? How should they? Do you have social media? You said you ain't got that. I don't have TikTok. I don't. Either, I, don't. I don't got TikTok. But and I might. I don't know. I might do it. I just, I always rebel. When something's trendy at first, I'm like, well, I'm not doing it. And, and then, then you'd be you right know, there with everybody else. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, actually, I let me tell you, I was mad late to Facebook. I was years late to Twitter. Instagram, I responded to something about being able to express myself the way I wanted to. I grabbed, I gravitated to TikTok. I'm not on, uh, what's the, what's the one where everyone's doing Snapchat? I'm not on. You on Clubhouse? Cause that is just ratchet. I haven't Clubhouse. done Clubhouse yet. I've gotten a lot of invitations, but I'm like, I don't know what y'all are talking about. I, don't know. I mean, who want to be able to have a group chat where you can hear people's voices? It's out of control sometimes. I just is peek it? in and pop, I, I pop in, get nosy and pop out. So yeah. I don't know. I might do it. I might, you know, it's a pop out, but you won't know I'm there. I just, I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I might do a TikTok this week, though. I've been thinking about it because um, my, my brother-in-law, Eric Bellinger and Jeremiah and Iceberg, they're coming out with a song that is. Your brother-in-law so is Eric Bellinger? Yeah. Yeah. My sister is married to Eric. Oh, that's dope. They you got all, you got ta- six years. You got talent all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. You, can do, you just get a soundtrack whipped up at Thanksgiving. I like that. I appreciate that. We do, though. We be listening to her. It's <laughs> Christmas. Album on Christmas. That's yeah. what's up. Well, it's a pleasure having you on the show. I am, um, we're praying for you. As you as you said, you wanted to maybe start a family soon. My yeah. wife and I, we've gone through the IUI and IVF, and we've mm-hmm. done all of those things and had a traumatic birth of our children, but they've been a blessing. We just celebrated two years with our children Uh January 7th. They're twins. So if you don't want to actually have them yourself, you can come take mine. They're buy one, get one free right now. I'll come get them. <laughs> <laughs> it's my sister. Come here. Um, yeah, I, I will definitely. I mean, twins would be the goal. Here's my sister. She, I was just telling you you were married to Eric. Turkey sausage. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? So random. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, that was random. That's okay, though. We're, you know, we're a random kind of family. I was like, um, I'm just enjoying this breakfast. That, okay. Y'all just got, what time is it? Y'all eating breakfast? Too early. Oh, too late. Sorry. We started it's, at it's noon, but we started early. Yeah. Kai, bring Sadie and Stokely over here. I have a 15-year-old doing um, virtual school, and then we have these twins. And so my my little girl, Sadie, when she was two, she got diagnosed with biliary atresia, which is a very rare liver disease. And then in March, she had her first surgery. And then um, September 1st of 2019, she had a liver transplant. Um, wow. So, yeah, but she's doing great now. How I mean, old she's is she? Two. She's two. Two. Wow. Yeah, they just turned two. Um, uh, January 7th. So it was a lot. Oh, that's so amazing, though. This is Sadie. Oh, she oh doesn't have my hair goodness. And this is Stokely. Oh, my goodness. They're so cute. Yeah, wait a minute. Hi, baby. Goodness. Say hey. Hi. You say hey. 
Oh my gosh, you guys got a girl and a boy? We, yeah, we're done. We made these in a lab. <laughs> <laughs> I told them they got to get a job. They cost me about 40 grand before they even got here. <laughs> I got a one-year-old and a five-year-old. Oh my, okay, so he's definitely like, okay, I'm gone. He's gone. She's he, sweet. She is just the love bug, huh? Yeah, she is. She's my little girlfriend. Oh my Go ahead. Gosh. They are precious. Oh, Ooh, that's a lot of work. That's what I want, though. My nanny was gone for eight days. She just came back. We We said a prayer. So yeah. <laughs> well, I'm praying for y'all. Y'all have fun. Y'all got the same smile. Look at that. <laughs> Thank you. Before I let you go, I wanted to take a moment to honor the life of entrepreneur, philanthropist, major league baseball legend, and the best player to ever play the game of baseball, Henry Hank Aaron. Because we have short memories in this country, it's worth reminding everyone that he was more than the home run king. He is still the career leader in total bases and RBIs and is third in hits behind Pete Rose and Ty Cobb. He was the first player in baseball history to amass 500 career home runs and 3,000 hits and the last player in the history to be promoted from the Negro Leagues to the Major Leagues. But beyond that, this is most important to me, Aaron and his wife, Billy, were cornerstones of the post-civil rights creation of black wealth in Atlanta and one of the city's leading philanthropists. He was a pioneering black auto dealer. He and his wife were major donors to every HBCU in Atlanta and major contributors to Atlanta Technical College. Their family foundation put thousands of kids through college, countless nonprofits that serve low-income Atlanteans and Georgians could count on the errands as donors that kept the lights on and their missions intact. I hope the postmortems on Mr. Aaron talk just as much about the lives and the city he helped transform as they do his home runs. Well done. Well done, thy good and faithful servant, Mr. Aaron. And that's that for today's show. We'll see you on Monday.